So welcome everyone to another episode of the Crowdsourcing Sustainability Podcast. We've got a special one today. Everyone gets to meet the Crowdsourcing Sustainability team. Uh, this was Diego's idea. Uh, just wanted to, you know, really introduce everyone listening to the, the team behind Crowdsourcing Sustainability, making a lot of the magic happen. And really, it's going to be pretty informal, just chatting about climate um, and whatever whatever direction this takes us is where we're going. Um, so yeah, let's let's start with some intros. I'm going to go over to Macy because she's next on my Zoom thing here. And Macy, you want to take it away? Uh, my name is Macy. Uh, I currently live in Chicago. I work for Allbirds um, and I am doing some social media um, and some uh, community connection for crowdsourcing sustainability. I've only been on the team for a few months, um, but I really, really enjoy this work. I like working on climate because I'm from California. And so I've watched the wildfires there devastate my, my hometown, my friends, houses, all of that. And so that has prompted me to really get into even more climate work um, especially here with crowdsourcing sustainability. Hi everyone, my name is Diego Wrench. I'm the video editor and podcast editor at uh, crowdsourcing sustainability. Um, I've been with the organization for a little over a year now, right? I think so. And I, my pronouns are he, him, and I've been really interested in climate for a long time, but especially now that a lot more wildfires are happening in my home state in Oregon. Um, and now I live in Los Angeles, so there's always wildfires here. So that's become a, a large motivating factor and a recurring theme you'll see with our team here. Thank you. Next. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Emily, and I use she, her pronouns. Um, I have been with Crowdsourcing Sustainability for about six months now, and I've been working uh, mainly on the LinkedIn newsletters and kind of the behind the scenes and stuff like that. Climate is really important to me, kind of similarly to Macy. I grew up in California and uh, surrounded by climate issues. And so it's been a large part of my upbringing. And now it's a large part of my education um, in my last year at school. Thanks, everybody. And uh, I am Ryan Hagen, he, him pronouns, been working on crowdsourcing sustainability for almost four years now, which is kind of crazy, um, and wearing a lot of hats. I won't dive into them. Uh, but Diego, do you want to start us off with the, some of the news items you picked out that you want to talk about? Yeah, so the big headline that was released Pretty recently, the uh, uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, has announced that 2021 was the fourth warmest year on record. So not number one, which is good, but um, that's despite everybody staying home and, you know, a lot less cars and a lot less stuff happening in the world, which is, you know, concerning. And so I just wanted to bring that up and, and show like it, uh, I, I don't really know what to, where to go with that. Like things aren't improving or, or are they? It's difficult to tell, you know, um, obviously nothing is getting done at the pace we would like. And uh, yeah. So they also said in this, that the current cost to the U S somebody, I don't know who estimated this, but. Uh, it's going to cost more than 145 billion just from this year. In terms of extreme weather, in damages. terms of extreme weather damages, and I think that's on top of like normal weather accounted for. Because I mean, you know, there's tornadoes every year, but maybe not as many. You know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So they really in the article talked about like that the winter storms that happened this past year. Um, and Hurricane Ida, which I didn't hear that much about. I feel like we've become kind of desensitized to a lot of the, especially hurricanes, because like ever since Katrina, it's kind of like, oh yeah, it's another one. Like 
they just they're always bad so uh yeah what do you guys think do you think uh i mean any thoughts about that Nancy, you look like you're about to dive in (laughs) sorry i didn't want to interrupt um i feel like the challenge with looking back is that all of this is like the effects of years prior to last year even and so it's hard to be like oh well this was the year that we like no one was traveling especially in 2020 right when that was really drastic that people really weren't flying they weren't they were really staying home that all of the effects that we're seeing now are from you know like maybe even like a decade ago and so it's hard I think even like for me but with all of the knowledge that I'm always consuming about climate change to kind of like grapple with that because I want it to feel like it's better because we were doing better but it's really we're not looking at like the effects that we're creating right now it's all from the past so really like we're probably I mean I like to think that maybe that means in our future we'll be a little bit better and we'll be more (laughs) lower on that list of how warm it is during the year but yeah I think that's something that I kind of have to remind myself when I look at those kind of things because I'm like well that's not something that we could have done in the moment necessarily it's past things that we've done yeah i think that's a really good clarification actually um because really until we get to zero emissions in a single year it's just going to keep getting hotter because it's cumulative um yeah and so it's just going to keep even if we even if we cut emissions by like 50 percent in the last year it was still going to be hotter because we added more greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. Uh, the, the other thing that came to mind, which when I first heard it, I thought was like, I don't know about profound, but I think it was like a big, like, oh, yes, that's a really good perspective or framing or way to say something. I'm always looking for language to communicate effectively. And it's the idea of when you talk about these temperature records or extreme whatever records, but temperature specifically, they it said, you know, don't think about this as the hottest year on record or hottest year, yeah, hottest year on record, but think of it as the coolest year in the next hundred years. And I think that kind of like flip in perspective is like, yeah, it's the hottest we've ever seen in our lifetime. But the proper way to think about this is look at it over the next hundred years as well. And it's going to be somewhere in, in the middle until we do get to zero emissions on a annual basis and, and really reach drawdown. But I also think that looking at it from this perspective is maybe beneficial as like people that pay attention to climate, but that it could be potentially harmful for people that don't. Because when you say this was the hottest year ever, I think back to how at the beginning of the year, we had our snow apocalypse in Portland where we all got snowed into our house and we had like the lowest temperatures ever, the most snow ever. And so it's really hard again to like grapple with the, how is it the hottest year when I just experienced this like insane snowstorm? So like in theory though, it is all like warmer than it's ever been across the board. It's also like hard for people that just read that headline and think that, it's hotter and that doesn't line yeah. up with what they experienced. Because people yeah. can only experience so much of the world at once. Right. And they're not looking at the whole cumulative year necessarily. They're just thinking about the big experiences. They, like I think back to like, you know, the the um, senator bringing the snowball into to Congress and being like, if it's hot, what is this? Like, it, it's hard for people <laughs> to get that. When did that happen? How? That was a while ago now. That was a long time ago now. Yeah. Yeah, that's really such an interesting way to think about it because, like, I, that is not the first thing that comes to mind, but in general, like, the rising temperatures are also just causing more, like, extreme weather events, kind of like what Diego was saying about the hurricanes and how we're becoming, like, desensitized to them because of, like, the, you know, that often, like how often they're happening and, and how severe they are just usually now. So I think it's definitely interesting of like what people now consider extreme is like a bit of snow, like out of season, um, while there are also like just huge weather events, like just tearing up people's homes and, and stuff like that. So yeah, definitely an interesting way to think about it. Absolutely. I think 
this leads to another another thought. You know, we we can say climate change, global warming, a good a couple other good ones that I've heard that kind of cast this wide net around the range of differences we're experiencing. It's like climate chaos, where I've heard Catherine Hayhoe say global weirding, like she's a whole episode on that. But it's just, you know, if you heat up the planet and kind of throw the climate system off kilter, it's not just going to be like heat waves that are different. It's you're, you're messing up the entire interrelated kind of complicated system that we that we work we're working with um i got one other sort of relevant news thing here um so especially because you know three of us either live in or are from california and ryan is in california right now so i guess for the brief time he's here it's going to be relevant but uh so Governor Newsom is just put together a, a big spending package, I guess. And he's putting 6.1 billion towards zero emission vehicles, including buses, trucks, and charging infrastructure. Charging infrastructure for low-income neighborhoods, which is weird, but uh, a 1.2 billion for wildfire and forest treatment projects, and a bunch of other stuff. Weirdly, less than a billion for water, which is um, probably not good, but yeah. What yeah, do you how think you about that? What are you thinking? I can tell you my initial thought is uh, there's there's what people like, I can't say what people like, what politicians think they're, they can do. And then there's like what, what people on the ground are doing like in their everyday lives. So when he says, charging infrastructure for low-income neighborhoods like in theory that sounds really cool but like teslas are expensive bro <laughs> like the making an affordable electric alternative is still pretty far out of reach for a, a lot of people um especially right now because like all the cars are insanely expensive i don't know if you've like looked at <laughs> used cars but they're really expensive right now because of the pandemic so yeah i, I noticed there's think- no trains Trains would be good. I'm sure there's, you know, we could go back and forth on all the yeah. best ways to, to get to zero emissions. I don't know where EVs ranks in that, but um, I, th- I like the building out or investing in lower yeah, income yeah, yeah. communities because other communities, especially, they're going to be much better, like much more able to do that on their own. Mm-hmm. So this, to me, even if it's a little premature, potentially, like I get your point, it is like EVs. By the are time everybody, expensive. by the time those communities catch up and everybody has, you know, EVs, those charging stations will be old. Mm-hmm. You know, so they'll still have older facilities than the richer neighborhoods. You know what I mean? So yeah. I don't know. I don't know though. I think this is hard because this is a chicken or the egg situation. Like the whole EV situation is is like so do you force everyone to have electric vehicles and then there's nowhere to charge them or do you build all the charging stations first and then that'll prompt people to get them so i feel yeah, like this, this maybe is, is setting a baseline because he recently set a date for not allowing the sales or the production of and like oh yeah new They're... cars all had to be electric by a certain year i don't know if it was 20 it was probably wasn't 2030 it was 25th but, but so i i think that this might be setting a basis for that because like ryan said like it's a lot easier for higher income communities to get infrastructure like that like they probably already have tesla charging yeah, stations so i feel like this maybe sets a baseline for everyone to kind of start off on the same place like okay we're giving you the infrastructure to do it so now you have to get this kind of car by this time yeah, they're like not there's totally no screwed excuse. when it comes out. Yeah, there's no excuse. Like, <laughs> Right, because if you have the infrastructure, then, you know, that'll force people to buy them more and people will start producing more EVs and it will become cheaper. Yeah. I'd like to see a lot more investment just in general, or a lot more focus when we think of mobility and transportation. Like EVs are obviously a piece of the solution but i think they get a disproportionate amount of coverage and investment and thought where we should be putting a lot 
more of that into like Diego said, like trains, uh, public transportation, bike lanes, making things walkable. Like there's a lot of mobility options that are kind of underappreciated as solutions mm-hmm. and they're cheaper and they're healthier and they'll cause less traffic. Like there's, there's a lot of, a lot of options that we typically, uh, kind of seem secondary in the background that are really, really important. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree, but I think also, sorry, Emily, I don't mean to interrupt you. No, Um, no, go ahead. But I think this is also like a California specific issue. Like the more that I live in the Midwest and I like talk to people that have never been to California or don't live in California, like they don't realize like how big and how spread out it is and how many small towns there are. So like, I think that this, as much as it is a band-aid, right, to kind of continue to have cars, it is like the easiest way to do it just because how large California is. Like we have been trying in my hometown to get a train that takes us to San Francisco for years and it is so expensive. It goes like halfway. It's just totally useless. And so I feel like in a big city like Chicago here, it would be super easy and super nice to like just put a train in. I mean, we already have trains, but you know, just as an example, but like in a state as big as California is having that kind of infrastructure is such a huge undertaking that like, this is just like the starting point potentially. And like, maybe we can get there eventually, but it's really hard with the geography. For, for anyone listening who might not be from California, um, Ryan is currently staying 20 miles from where I am. The drive would take over 40 minutes right now. Despite the fact that, you know, you should be able to go like, you know, 70 on the freeway. It's not going <laughs> to, it, it will never actually be that fast unless LA. there was a train. Right. LA traffic is real. Uh, Emily, were you going to say something? Oh, yeah. I was just thinking about, like, the question of, like, bang for buck. Like, Diego rattled off all these numbers of of amount of money that's being assigned to, like, each of these different um, climate aspects. Uh, But I have no idea, like, how to quantify that in my mind. And I think a lot of other people don't have, um, like, that semblance of an idea either. And so it's interesting, like, how much... How much do electric cars actually help the climate versus, I don't know, like big farming machines that also like uh, emit um, CO2 just like cars and those aren't being changed to be electric or anything like that. It's all individual, like very small, like uh, consumer driven cars. And so, I don't know, it's, it is, it's a question of bang for buck for me. So it's like, is is a train worth it? I, I'm from San Diego and they have just, they've gone through a really big process of like implementing like a, a basically tram system because everything is so spread out there. And I'm just not even sure how many people actually use it. Cause like there are still like eight lane car freeways. And so people just prefer to do what they want, you know, or like what they're used to. So I don't know, like, would, would it be worth it to actually get a train? Like, would people use it enough? And if, if not right now, like, how can we get to that stage where it would be worth it is my question, you know? Yeah, those are, those are good points. I think, um, first off, I'm with you on the, you know, you hear all these numbers and it's really hard to wrap your head around what they mean and how big that actually is. Um, but in terms of will people actually use it, I think that all comes down to making it really, you know, more effective, a better experience. Um, my mind is wandering to, so I studied abroad in Copenhagen back in 2012 or 2013. And I was blown away just how many people were biking. And like, you know, I rode my bike around in high school a decent amount to get to friends' houses and stuff. But over in Copenhagen, like it's over 50%, I believe, are biking to work. And so I, instead of taking the bus or driving, I didn't have a car, obviously, but I wouldn't have driven anyway because 
biking was actually like really nice to get to school. And they had built out these bike lanes where you are actually separated and elevated from the cars and the road and you have your own space. So it feels just like safe and pleasurable and you're outside and fresh air. Um, and I think, you know, it's a similar thing with public transportation. If you make it easy and desirable and cheap and it's clean, then I think people will, you know, that'll be what they choose. So it's, it's partially cultural um, and self-fulfilling. Like if you build the bikers, if you built bike infrastructure, it's much more likely they come. I think it's the same thing if you build good trains that get you there quickly, like as fast as a car, or if not faster, then people are going to end up choosing that thing. So I think a lot of it is about design and setting people up to succeed and, and um, you know, sort of nudge them into the, the, the type of transport that you want them to take, but make it better, make it good, you know? That's, um, um, that has a lot to do with like the way Americans in particular build our cities. Um, I mean, everything is really spread out. Like, I remember feeling, I studied in Germany for a little while, not as good as Copenhagen, but still really good. Uh, I felt kind of claustrophobic sometimes because, you know, there's no gaps between their houses ever. Like, unless you're really wealthy and you live on the edge of town, there's, you know, you live in basically what we would call a townhouse. And, and that's if you weren't in an apartment. And so, um, I don't know. It's like, it, so for me, this, the, the fact that Newsom is making this bill, it's an opportunity to change the way Los Angeles is built, you know, like they're, they are changing some laws on how densely you can build housing and stuff. Cause we, God knows we need housing here. If you ever been down where the um, homeless camps are by uh, Skid Row, uh, and it's an opportunity to also clean up our carbon footprint because if you can get less people off the road or more people off the road, then basically that's 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 their carbon footprint. It's already lowered. You know what I mean? Um, and you know they have electric, fully electric trains. We don't even need gas-powered ones. You know, like they they can electrify the entire transportation grid if they if they really wanted to they could do it tomorrow. Like there's enough money out there. There's enough resources and technology. It's already all there. There's just the, the will of people to do it and the will of politicians to put their neck on the line to make it happen. It's not, not really possible. I mean, maybe it is, I don't know. Maybe I'm being too gloom and doom about it, but <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a, uh, there's a really, if in case you're interested about that, like there's a really good series on YouTube called Not Just Bikes. And he talks about Copenhagen, Amsterdam, Northern European cities where, you know, the whole town has been beautifully laid out so that you don't have to own a car at all. And most people who live in those cities uh, have a really low carbon footprint or in some cases, they're, if they have a newer development building, it's carbon neutral. Like it's, you know, they might have a green roof and that takes up all of the carbon emissions that they normally use. So it's, uh, it's pretty fascinating. And I think the fact that you're down here in SoCal can give you <laughs> a taste of like, this is kind of the worst city in that regard anywhere. It's like so flat. Like there's the, the downtown is a very, very small area that not very many people actually live in. You know what I mean? Everybody else lives in these suburbs. They're spread out for, like I just said, like 20 or up to 40 miles. Like you can drive east of where you are and you will not leave the city for close to 60 miles. 
but it's not really a city. It's like really low one-story buildings for, do you get what I'm going at here? So it's like our impact on the environment is unnecessarily large um, and it doesn't yeah. need to be, you know? There, there's a lot it's of sprawl. Just, it's just so sprawly that it's, I mean, if you go, if you want nature, you have to go all the way to Riverside. <laughs> yeah, so. density is definitely important in the sustainability conversation around cities. I would also say um, you mentioned being claustrophobic in Germany at the <laughs> beginning, and maybe maybe you'd get used to it. I don't know, but like that kind of thing yeah. is actually really good for sustainability as well. Because when you mm -hmm. share a wall with someone the like envelope of the of the building becomes much better. You're not yeah. losing heat or coolness on mm -hmm. one of, or probably both sides where you have people on the other side. Um, were you gonna say something Macy or should we move on to the next news segment? Actually, unless anybody else has any other news stuff, we can just move on to the, to the topics you guys wanted to talk about. Let's do it. Emily, you wanna you wanna start us off? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to kind of bring up um, this idea of climate migration and like displacement. I took a class over the summer, and um, it was just really interesting to me how little support there was for this type of like problem for people having to cross international borders if their houses or homes are destroyed. And there's just really no support um, like on either end for them. I don't really have a question, but it was something that I thought would be interesting to bring up, like given um, the recent um, conference with all of the uh, international states, because um, there's not really like a overarching international governing body. And so I, you know, it's kind of a question of who's, um, who should be liable for stuff like that? Like who should have to spend the money to either house these people or fix the problems that like came up where their homes were destroyed, stuff like that. Yeah, I, I think this is a hugely important topic uh, before sharing my two cents, I'd love to hear what you think, Emily, if you just did a, a project on it, you've been thinking about this a bit, like what was your gut reaction or what, where are you at now in terms of what we should be doing about it? Yeah, well, I think like I kind of came to the conclusion it's really complicated. <laughs> um, it kind of depends you know where people are coming from like if their country is has a lot of money or not like if they're coming into the united states or a different type of country but in general like i do think it's important to internationally set up those um protections for these people and so i think like coming up with because right now there there is like a refugee convention and people displaced by climate are not actually covered by that like, technical refugee um, term. And so they can't seek those protections. And so they have to often go through like different means to try to claim it that way. And it's a really hard process. And so I think like generally in my ideal world, it would be trying to fix that like setup where you know, all these countries signed the refugee convention and they're also like signing all these things to do with like climate change and stuff like that. And so if everyone included a little piece of like, okay, well, we are, you know, by default, everyone who signs this is going to like acknowledge that climate refugees are a thing, um, then like at least those people would have protections like in the first place. And I think that solving the climate problems kind of comes after. And that's kind of like the bigger overarching thing that everyone's trying to solve, obviously. But, you know, helping those people individually, I think is, is really, really like the first step. Yeah, I think, um, I think you're right. That is like, we need, we need to figure this out ASAP. 
really, because it's already happening and it's only going to be more and more prominent. Um, it's going to get really bad in some places. Yeah. So the number that I've seen as I think is most often cited was by 2050, there might be 200 million uh, people displaced by climate around the world. I don't think that means necessarily they'll be leaving their country, but they'll be forced to leave their home. And then the upward number by 2050 that I've seen the UN say is a billion people. And like for perspective, that is the population of North America and South America combined. So we're talking like just absolutely massive amounts of people and I think you, like like Emily said, like we need to figure out, yes, keep working on climate. We're gonna have to do key things at once in the coming decades, but like how do we take care of people and make sure that they're getting their basic needs met? I personally think like like Emily said, we need to get the international rules and whatever figured out. Uh, but two things that come to mind for me are if we were going to be fair about this as you look at the historical emissions by country and you know whatever the percentage is of those historical emissions you take that proportion of climate refugees and so the U.S. I think is at like 25 percent of historical emissions that's our fair share of what we put in the atmosphere so going forward I think it would be fair it's another thing to actually make it happen especially in today's climate or media ecosystem um but taking 25 percent of climate refugees because it was our country that you know put up those emissions that had a, an effect on those people's lives through no fault of their own um I had one other thing to say, but I forget, so I'll, I'll shut up for now. The thing about like population, how do you, what would you say? Climate refugees, that gives me the most worry isn't actually the refugees themselves. It's people's reaction to them. I'm, I mean, I've seen like a lot of, we usually don't expect anything from, you know, the right wing especially in America, because they don't even think it's happening. But like, for example, in Germany, the, uh, the alternative for Deutschland, the, the far right party there, the youth wing of that party. So the, the people our age who are right, far right, they decided that they want, uh, they want a climate policy, but uh, it's basically an eco-fascist one. And I am really worried that by not doing something now and not, you know, regulating or, you know, or, or making the, the flow of these climate refugees somewhat orderly and fair and in a way that isn't going to push, push countries over that edge. Do you see what I'm saying? Back into the fascisty kind of mindset of, well, we got ours and we're going to keep you out you know, regardless of whether or not their country contributed more emissions or not, you know? Um, I'm really worried about that because a lot of the, the older generations of conservatives aren't, aren't going to get it. The younger ones will, you know what I mean? And uh, their priority, they're still, you know, they're still far right. Their priority is us first, you know what I mean? So um, I think that's actually... I think Emily's right that that is the most crucial thing we have to deal with, um, like right now. And the uh, it should be like an incentive. You would think it would act as an incentive for people to do something about climate. Because like, if there's one thing a lot of people, a lot of countries don't like, it's immigrants, unfortunately. Um, I say this as the child of an immigrant. Uh, like, hey, if you don't want uh, a huge number of immigrants to come to your country, you should probably do something about climate change or else the number is just gonna keep growing. 
You know what I mean? But I haven't seen that actually work yet. So I don't know. That is a, a scary topic. In um, uh, what's that book? Uh, David Wallace Wells. Uh, Uninhabitable. The the inha- what's it called again? Uninhabitable. The Uninhabitable yeah. Earth. That was, he has a whole chapter dedicated to that, didn't it? If I'm not mistaken, it's been a while. Probably. I didn't. I didn't finish that, although it was really good. Really <laughs> you didn't finish it. <laughs> yeah. You should finish it. It's really good. <laughs> but yeah, I I agree. This is. I think you hit the nail on the head. It is the eco-fascism part of this that really, really scares me. Uh, and I think there's an increasing number of people who are going to go from denial or this isn't an issue to we need to put up a wall, we need to keep everyone out, like just xenophobic reaction. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I don't know if anyone has answers here, but one thing that comes to mind for me is if we were, if we were being smart about this as a country, any country, but, you know, take the U S for example, even if we weren't thinking about increasing numbers of climate refugees, we should be building more capacity, like more homes, more places for people to go that are in the safer parts of the country because there's also going to be internal migrations. Like That's we don't true. even yeah. have to look to climate refugees to- yeah, Don't move to Phoenix. Well, you got sea level rise, you know, you got the increasing storms, you got wildfires and people's homes are in places that are super risky. Um, so I think if yeah. you're smart, we'd be building out the places that are safer, that have water. And, you know, I think the Midwest is probably, there's a lot of old cities there that as globalization happened, they stopped booming and even declined in some cases. And I think it's, it's worth investment to build those out and build capacity for a place for people within the country and with outside of the country for people to go. And one last thing, I, I'd, I'd love to know the history of how this changed or if it's all, I mean, it's always been that we've, the country's always been against immigrants uh, on some level, but then, you know, in theory, the value is the place where people can come. Like America yeah. is the one where immigrants can come to and it makes us stronger and more ideas and diversity. And so, I'd be curious to know the history of those two things and and how they've intersected and how peoples or parties have changed their minds on those things over time. One thing I know is I remember, I think it was, who's the guy who invented the light bulb? Uh, not the light bulb, electricity, who found it? Edison, Tesla? No, 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 before. Franklin. Yeah. Uh, Benjamin Franklin made a comment about German immigrants way back he was super concerned that we were all going to be speaking German because there were more Germans than there were English at that point. And they hadn't like solidified the concepts of, of race yet. They were still malleable and like, um, you know, more tied to your ethnicity than to your, to your race. So they're like, we don't want a bunch of Germans here. Get out of here. Stop tempting us with your beer kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been going forever. Yeah. That's actually, uh, as much as we talk about like how the, the U.S. doesn't like, well, because of the Trump administration doesn't really like immigrants, it's still like not even close. Us and the next nation, like on how many immigrants come to this country, like it's, it's really far. Like we accept a lot of people here. Um, the problem is that it's it's usually based on if you can afford it or if you know how to if you know your way around the laws so um it isn't we're not getting this uh we're not helping the people who need it we're helping the people who want it you know what i mean does that make sense i don't really know i want to say one other thing 
I, you know, so much of climate in my mind, the getting to the systemic solutions that are, are getting to solutions that hit on the, the real roots of our problems. Like I, I, I think we would benefit a lot from having an honest conversation in this country about our history <laughs> uh, because everyone here is an immigrant with the exception of indigenous folks. And, you know, I think our national ego, like, I don't know how to really say this, but it would change dramatically if we were honest about our history and how we got here and what happened and start to make amends for all that went down like we would as a country maybe see ourselves a bit differently and then be a bit more open-minded i don't know i'm just spitballing here but i think a lot of our problems um come from places of supremacy and that kind of thing yeah and that's not good. <laughs> no. Um, on the plus side, on the that's not really plus side, but on the plus side, sort of, the general population across the whole world is, uh, I if I'm not mistaken, it's heading for a period of decline. So there will be less people to have to to admit emissions, less people to uh, move. Um, there's a, a, a book called Empty Planet by some Canadian researchers. And one of the chapters, they discuss the impacts on climate by, uh, um, because the birth rate in almost every developing nation is really low. So like for Americans, if you were born in America, it's really low. It's like 1.5. Developed so 1.5, yeah, developed nations. 1.5 children per woman, which is not enough to replace the number of people who died. So in a few decades, the population is going to start falling instead of growing. Yeah. Um, I think it's and that's around. actually happening even in countries that you think of as being, you know, places where lots of people have kids. So for example, in Mexico, it's used to be like when my mom was a kid, she had 12 siblings. It was really high. Now it's 2.3 and falling every year. You know, in Japan, it's like 1.1. It's insanely, like they're gonna lose half their population. And that's why educating women is one of the top ways yeah. to combat climate change. It is, um, simply because there's less people. <laughs> yeah. It's um, this is a drawdown thing that I love. It's educating women and mm -hmm. family planning. So yeah. just yeah. giving women what they need to make choices. Yeah. And then it's, you know, if you empower people, the population will naturally start to go down. I think this is super important to talk about in that lens though, because, you know, we can get to a lower population through empowering people in kind of human rights sort of thing. But that is also like what eco-fascism is basically. Well, eco-fascism is like that, but, way. but more with more purpose <laughs> and more selecting. Um, you know, we yeah. want these kind of people to be the ones who are still around. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's um, darker. Yeah, but I think it's important when you talk about population to be clear. Yeah, about yeah, yeah. How. Like this, oh, yeah. I should put in the book. I should clarify in the book. This is happening almost entirely because of women's education and the urbanization of the world. So, even even countries like like what would you guess the birth rate is in Brazil? A very religious country. Um, a lot of a male dominated society mostly and pretty poor those are like three ingredients for a lot of kids right it's 1.8 it's not even two they're already declining so it's like 
did you can't stop women <laughs> there's nothing you could do when it starts to go down so it's like um that might be the best it's kind of a weird um best shot humanity has at, at really getting to a stable place with the climate is just by simply having less humans but who knows how long down the road that'll be you know yeah but i think also i read a really good article about this i have to go back and find it i read it in school and so now all of my resources are are failing me because i'm having a hard time going back and finding them but <laughs> the article was essentially about reframing the it's not about population necessarily it's about consumption because mm. when you say population that really falls on like the global south and like the comparison between like someone in the global south having like five to ten children versus someone in the global north having like one to two children like doesn't even line up because of the way that we consume in different parts of the world and so like saying population sometimes can be harmful because like that's not really what it's about like it's no, really it's, more it's really so about, about how much you're consuming and how much right us consuming too much you're producing are consuming yeah that's a very good point thank you macy emily do you have final thoughts on this we've wandered a bit but <laughs> want to take us home here we have wandered um <laughs> but i mean Sorry. i i've loved the wandering points of the conversation and, and just hearing where where it's gone and stuff and I think like just so many good ideas were brought up and it's given me a lot to think about and I for sure I'm just like I want to figure out a way you know a more solid way to like quantify consumption like and each individual person depending on like their different circumstances is, is super different and then I think like generally it's my understanding that a lot of you know the people who who subscribe to your newsletter Ryan are like looking for ways to reduce their individual consumption and so that's like what this all like basically always boils back down to and so I like the way that we uh, veered the conversation in that direction I think it was very fitting in my mind nice um all right can Maybe I go sweet. next? Because I was yeah, basically go? gonna, yeah. Like my question is almost <laughs> exactly the same as Emily's. Like when she started talking about it, I was like, oh, that's mine. Cause I was exactly the same. I was thinking about um COP 20, 26, 26, right? So mm -hmm. in Scotland and how like all of the, you know, top articles were about small nation being like, so what? Like, so the US signed this paper that says they're gonna do it. Are they actually gonna do it? And so just made me think about like, like Emily said, like, who's accountable? How do we hold each other accountable? Because it seems like every time we're like, oh, yeah, we're gonna, you know, decrease by 50% in the next 50 years. And that's like, not really meaningful anymore, especially for those small nations that like, can't really afford to do anything about it and are already like, facing the effects. And so maybe like on a broader scale of what Emily was talking about, like, how do we who, who should be in charge of this? Like who should be holding everyone accountable and like what should we be doing to actually make sure that we're making change? Because it doesn't really feel like we are even though we keep having these meetings. Like it just seems like we're having meetings to talk about what we're gonna do at the next meeting um, and things aren't really changing as much as they need to be. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a, chart I saw recently which kind of makes that point exactly it's like you know cop started circa 1990 somewhere around there um maybe it's mid 90s but anyway it's this chart and it shows the emissions year after year and the cop cop one cop two cop three and how after each one is just going up 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 um and yeah even with the paris agreement there's that did move us in the right direction but there's still no teeth on these things. So I don't know what I always come back to is we, as in just regular citizens, I think if we're going to be doing all we can, that, that kind of means focusing, like, you know, vote for climate people at the state and national level and all that. But I think what it really comes down to is trying to change our 
towns or cities that we live in <laughs> and also the companies that we work for. I think those are like our biggest spheres of influence in terms of like what we can do to actually start making a dent. Um, and I'll say one other thing and then hand it over to someone, but I think this idea of you, you got, you got to the point of sort of the inequality of it all again, the richer nations are the ones that caused this problem by and large. And I think similar to the idea of proportionality of taking a certain amount of climate refugees, I think if the U S is 25% responsible for the problem, we should also be proportionally a part of the solution at the very least. And richer countries, I think, have a responsibility to lead. And, you know, if the global target is 2050 net zero, which I think is debatable, it should be a bit sooner than that, yeah. um, given what we're seeing and some scientists are saying. But let's just say that is what it is that means really that the u.s needs to get to net zero before 2050 you know like it's not like everyone's going to get there at the same time if you have the means you have more responsibility to move faster and i think the same thing applies not just at the national level but also for corporations for states individuals like down the line if you have capacity to do more faster or help other people, you should be doing all those things. Right, because once again, we come back to the like global north versus global south, global south generally, of course, that's a generalization, but like it's, it's hard to sit in the US not doing anything about our emissions and then tell India, hey, you need to cut your emissions, right? Like the irony there is very apparent. And so I feel like definitely percentage wise it should work out that way but also like taking into consideration where they are in their development as well because it's hard to like say that another country can't develop as we have done for the past like our whole history when we're not doing anything about it either so i see like how challenging that is we actually did a like practice of this in one of my classes in college where we each were assigned a country and we literally had to like sit there and like talk it out until we got to a resolution and it was crazy how difficult it was because people really took on their roles and were like well how am i supposed to support my developing nation if the cheapest option is fossil fuels and you're telling me i can't use fossil fuels anymore as you're using fossil fuels mm -hmm. so it's really it's really hard and it's really hard to see who's going to hold anyone accountable in that instance yeah. Yeah, I will say on that, I think the economics have changed significantly, even in just the last yeah. decade. Yeah. yeah. So it's something, this is Bloomberg, they say like 75 and 75% of the world renewables are now cheaper than fossil fuels. Um, yeah. Another news thing I just saw, I'll have to like fact check on this, but this is the gist of it. Um, planned gas power plants in the US over the next decade, like something like 80% of them would be cheaper if we scrapped them and just use renewables instead. And it's a Natural similar number. Yeah, it's a similar number for wow. existing coal plants today. It's it would be cheaper if we just shut those down and built out new solar and wind. Um, so the economics there i think it's just especially low-income countries really need more investment to roll those out yeah. and lift their right. people's standard of living while simultaneously preparing like adapting preparing for the more extreme weather to come and these things i mean so all it's all interconnected like if those investments are made not only is it fair but it's going to make the far fewer climate refugees going forward, less conflict, less violence, yeah. more stable supply chains. Like, I, I just think we have such a 
zero sum winner loser mindset and it's in reality it's a lot more cooperation we're all on this we are all on the same team um it'd be great if we started acting that way can i say something real quick about the because you mentioned supply chains mm-hmm. um i mean there's still ships backed up in the port here uh if anything the pandemic should have taught us like our supply chains suck. They're like really fragile. Mm-hmm. Like if you like water rights in California, like if you look at how they do it, there's no like, it's simple, you know, it's a bathtub underground. Like if it's full, there's water for everyone. But if you take out more than it refills by, then there's not going to be water. Like it's so basic and people don't get it at all and i don't i i, I don't understand how they can <laughs> how the, how our system has even worked this far if it's like you know this mind-bogglingly inefficient and also just self-destructive it's not even it's not only just destroying the environment you know it's destroying our own way of life the one it was designed to make you know so I, anyway, sorry. Yeah, we have a lot of stuff to figure out. I'll say uh, one more thing, cause I had jotted this down to say later, but it's flows kind of smoothly cause you brought up the, the ships backed up in the port. Um, I saw this yesterday in a Bill McKibben newsletter and it kind of blew my mind. He, you know, he wasn't the one who like, who discovered or anything, but he was sharing the fact that fossil fuels account for about 40% of what is shipped around the world, which just pollute coal, oil, gas, they make up 40% of, of what is on our ships. And it's mind blowing to me because if, when, when we get off fossil fuels, like think of how much capacity that opens up think of how much more efficient uh things get because we don't need to ship these things left right everywhere we just our energy is localized wind solar um so just that this whole idea of like things become much more efficient as we transfer off of fossil fuels as well um another example of that this is why I like writing because I can actually look up the stats and get it right and link to the proper thing. But something like six to 12%, it might be 10% of the energy used in the US is energy going to extract, refine, and transport fossil fuels. So that's another like major efficiency when we don't need nearly as much energy uh, once we go wind and solar because we don't have to extract this stuff. We don't have to transport it. We don't have to refine it. Um, so I just think there's a lot of wins and efficiencies that we don't like aren't even on our radar in terms of this transformation to a, a cleaner future. Um, listening at you, like listening to you talk about all the, the benefits of getting off fossil fuels, I'm like, wow, this, yeah, it seems so easy and like great when you say it. And then, you know, I just think about how the U.S. can't even decide our on our own climate, um, like bill and, and whatever. Like there's pushback because people are making their living off of like fossil fuels and, and mm-hmm. creating that energy. And so it's kind of like, well, there are all these benefits like waiting for us on the other side and like these great things that can happen if we do change. But if, if like even the United States can't even like agree on a way to like phase those in and phase out fossil fuels like how are we expecting the rest of the world to do that you know it's just really disappointing to me when they're you know we couldn't come to a, an agreement with um like all this stuff with biden's new bill and, and stuff like that and you know it put me in a really pessimistic mindset that you know, it's making me think about like, okay, well, what is the solution to this? Like if, if people don't want to 
agree to this right now like what will you agree to or like what will people like agree to what are the steps that we can take i thank you Bray. bring up an excellent point and next time we chat we should talk about democracy reform getting money oh yeah getting money out of politics yeah Uh, pure pessimism (laughs) well if you if you look at the uh i mean emily you're talking about mansion yeah yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I mean, this dude makes money off of coal. He meets with Exxon people regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, we just we need to find a way to get money out of our political system so the fossil fuel industry isn't playing puppet with the people who are controlling these large amounts of public money because if you look at the polling even in west virginia west virginians want this coal mining unions want to build back better to pass joe manchin personally benefits from not doing it so it's just there's a lot of reforms that need to be made in our democracy in order to in order for things to actually get done that people want to get done there's, there's this awesome video by Represent Us. Uh, it's like 10 minutes. I think it has Jennifer Lawrence in it, maybe. But they're going through all these like reforms that need to be made in the US to really strengthen our democracy. And one of the things that stuck out to me when I watched this years ago was they show this chart and it's a flat line. It's at 30, 30%. So it's flatline at 30%. That is the chance that any given bill passes, no matter how much public support is behind it. Wow. So it, it just like kind of goes to show how detached public opinion is from what actually gets done. So it's, it comes down to a dysfunctional system. Um, and I actually had democracy jotted down here as a thing to possibly bring up. So I'm glad you hit the nail on the head, Emily. But, uh, you know, it, I've been thinking recently, like, how, sh- how should a lot of climate people be shifting focus to democracy? Like, can we do climate stuff if these systems aren't functioning? Um, I think that's an open question. Obviously, we'd be best doing both at the same time but things aren't looking very good in the US right now on the democracy side of things. So I think it's worth asking ourselves. Yeah. Can I ask something like a tiny bit off topic, but like on topic? Did you guys watch Don't Look Up? <laughs> yeah. That, that hurt a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Did you watch it too, Emily? You are about to say something. Uh, no, I was just a great, yeah, nice, great chuckle, I guess. <laughs> what was your What was your take, Macy? I got so emotional like halfway through because I was like, "Wow!" Like even people meeting with the president or like obviously that's way over eyes, whatever. But I was like, "This is this is what I'm trying to do, and this is how people are getting treated, and that's what I'm trying to make my career out of." And it just I don't know halfway through I got really really down and then i still really enjoyed it but it definitely felt a little a little too close to home for me (laughs) yeah my i personally was like i think i just liked it so much because i felt understood (laughs) so validating yeah um i think a lot of people in the climate space felt that way uh, it was interesting to see there's a lot of critics coming out swinging against it. And in my mind, it's like almost too on point because they're somewhat of the media. Yeah, you know, just... they are. They are what the <laughs> You're movie's talking feeding about. into the whole point there. <laughs> yeah, it's so spot on. As um, a movie, if you look at it without the climate context, which you shouldn't do, but if you did, which a lot of those critics did, it's like, okay, it's kind of silly. You know what I mean? But once you put the context into it, it's terrifying. It's so like, 
humongous difference you know what but I mean? that's the point right is that yeah. if you look at it without context you think it's ridiculous because it is ridiculous like they just are feeding right into it it's incredible yeah if you have not seen this movie and you're listening to this absolutely watch go watch it. yeah i was actually really happy i heard uh it broke netflix's record for most views in a week as it should yeah. All right. Does anyone else have final thoughts or things they would like to talk about? Any wise words, messages to the world? Don't be too pessimistic. <laughs> yeah, be COVID safe, people. Yeah, for real. Um, all right. Let's let's call it a wrap then. I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of your day and. Thanks for tuning in. If you have any uh, questions or thoughts or feedback, definitely shoot us a note. We'd love to hear from you.